Let's pray. Lord, we are, we are grateful for your love. We are grateful for our relationship. But God, sometimes there's questions that, that lie deep in our spirits that we don't know the answers to. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place. We ask that you'd speak very clearly to our hearts and to our minds. And God, for those who perhaps are wrestling, those perhaps who are struggling this morning, I pray, God, that you would, in some small way, through the teaching this morning, as we look at this next psalm, would give peace and comfort to them, that they would understand that what happens to us, what takes place in our lives, does not define who you are in our lives, Lord. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome, and thanks so much for joining us, and uh, thanks for laughing at the video at the appropriate places. I appreciate that, because, uh, and, and just so you know, guys, for a dating technique, asking a girl, yes, 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 that might be uh, a new strategy for some of you to try. Um, we're going to continue on a series we started off uh, uh, last, a uh, few weeks back on the Psalms. We're going to be walking through looking at the, books of, uh, the book of Psalms and picking out a few of the Psalms to kind of talk about what they have to teach us. Let's recap what we talked last week. Last week, we looked at Psalm 34. Remember, Psalm 34 was written in the cave, right? David has, was, was fleeing the palace, and Saul was trying to kill him. And through serious circumstances, not his own, he finds himself in a cave. And Psalm 34 was written in a cave. Now, remember I said to you that when you go from the palace to the cave, what do you say to God? How do you respond to God? Because this is actually really important. For most of us, we respond by... Um, anger, or we shake our fist at God, or how dare you, or how could you, or why me, right? But look at uh, Psalm 34, verses 1 to 3. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak of his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. David seemed to know, uh, he seemed to understand something about God, that his relationship with, with God wasn't dependent on whether he's living in the palace or a cave, but on something a little bit different than that. We looked at a guy named uh, Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was uh, a Jew in, uh, 19, in 1942 in Germany who was taken from his home. Him and his wife were taken into a concentration camp. And Viktor Frankl was a psychologist, and one of his specialties was observing uh, depression and grief in, in context. So in the middle of a concentration camp, he gets to see how people respond to circumstances. And what Viktor Frankl says in his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, is this. The one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond what you do to me. The last of one's freedom is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. What Victor was saying, I think, is really kind of important, which David understood. My circumstances don't dictate who God is to me. And whether things are going my way or not going my way, God is still God. And David seemed to understand that. That's why he was able to sing God's praises in the cave. And we wrapped up by looking at Acts chapter 13. The Bible uses a phrase to describe David. He says that David was a man after God's own heart. And I said to you that that phrase always felt very ambiguous to me. Like, what does it mean, a man after God's own heart? Like, what does that look like? Well, in Acts chapter 13, it kind of gives us a little extra statement that kind of helps us understand it. It says this, um, uh, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. It was this idea of obedience, this idea of saying, yeah, it's not just that I'm, I'm seeking after God's heart, but I'm also obeying him. I'm actually doing what he's asked me to do. That was last week, and this week we're going to continue on, and then we're going to take a look at this idea of why do bad things happen to good people? 
it's kind of a question that many people ask, people have uh, responded to, and people have come, come to and, and said, okay, what does it look like when, when we look at this world and we see how disasters or suffering or struggles take place? How do we respond to that? Um, there's an article uh, I came across by a guy named David P. Melvin, and actually he was writing on the psalm we're going to be looking at today, and the title of the article was, Why Does the Way of the Wicked Prosper? And he says this, One of the perennial questions which have plagued theology, religion, and humanity in general for millennia is the seeming lack of positive correlation between righteous living and prosperity. It's kind of interesting, actually. So what he's saying is that, you know, if I do right, behave right, act right, should I not therefore get stuff, have stuff, be stuff, be healthy, be whatever, right? Isn't that what we're taught? He goes on to say this, were it even so simple as there being absolutely no connection between one's behavior and one's prosperity or the lack thereof, the dilemma would not be so pro- uh, problematic. He quotes from Job chapter 21, and Job is a fascinating book. And we're going to take uh, touch base with Job uh, a little later on. But he says this about Job in Job chapter 27. Job says this, why do the wicked still live? It's kind of actually an interesting question, right? If people do bad things, shouldn't like a lightning bolt from heaven come? Like, wouldn't it be fantastic if someone stands up and says, there is no God, like a lightning bolt. Uh, There'd be a lot less atheists, that's for sure, but we would have clear proof that there is a God. Instead, what we have is, as we look at this world, is that there's people who are behaving, acting in certain ways. We go, how is it that they get all the good stuff? Right? Like, how is it that if I'm acting this way and they're acting that way, but they seem to be getting all the good stuff? And that's health, it's wealth, it's happiness, it's Instagram followers, whatever you would say the good stuff would be. Uh, he goes on to say this, The righteous suffer while the wicked grow fatter and fatter. This fact is well borne out in modern society in the form of crooked politicians, corrupt businessmen, and persons of wealth and power who advance themselves to the detriment of others. This is actually kind of a profound question. Why is it somebody who behaves and acts in certain ways that are clearly against what God wants, they seem to get all the good stuff? And how do we as Christ followers look to our own lives and say, well, God, if I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to behave this way, can I not get some of that good stuff? Why can't I behave that way? If you have your Bibles or your electronic device, we're going to be looking at Psalm 73 this morning. Psalm 73 is my favorite psalm in the book of Psalms. I'll explain why in a second. But before I do, I want to look at this quote by A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer has this fantastic quote, and I think it says a lot about who we are as individuals. A.W. Tozer says this, What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. Now, this is actually really amazing because what A.W. Tozer is saying is that wherever you are on the spectrum of faith, from no faith whatsoever to completely devout, what you, how you see God, how you view God says a lot about you. So if you're a Christ follower and you believe God is always angry, you act and respond accordingly. If you believe that God's judgmental, if you believe that God is loving and no matter what you do, God loves you and so on and so forth, right? Whatever you believe about God says a lot about who you are as an individual. And as we look at Psalm 73, we are going to see this play out in a way that actually gives an answer to why do bad things happen to good people? So Psalm 73 is uh, an interesting psalm that's going to answer this question, but not in the way that perhaps we might have thought, but kind of gives us a clear view of, of, of kind of navigating this route. Psalm 73 starts off in verse 1 saying this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
Now, one of the things I do that whenever I teach from the Old Testament, I always try to read rabbinical writers. Now, rabbinical simply means Old Testament Jewish commentators on the Old Testament because the Old Testament was written to Jewish people. So what I want to understand first and foremost is, what does it mean to them? Before I, as a Gentile, you know, take a look and say, well, this is what it means, I want to say, well, what did it mean to them first? And what was interesting to me when I studied Psalm 73 was the rabbinical writers said that Psalm 73 starts off sarcastically. Which I thought to myself was interesting because the Bible isn't sarcastic. It's profound, it's sacred, but apparently it is sarcastic. And so when you read, you know, surely God is good uh, to Israel, what you have to say to the inflection is, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now the reason they start off this way, because in the next verse he's going to contrast something. And so the writer is actually saying something kind of sarcastic, kind of something flippant, something he actually doesn't believe. Because verse 2 and 3 is going to actually show us what he actually does believe. And so verse 2 and 3, it says this, but as for me, right? It's a fantastic statement. Because in the one moment he says, God is good to those who, God is good to good people. I'm apparently not one of the good people, right? So he's kind of, he, he shifts direction completely in the next verse. says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Whatever the writer is wrestling with, it is enough to shake his faith. Look at the, uh, Look at the language and the imagery there. My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Now, for us as Canadians, this is actually kind of a common occurrence in wintertime when you're on ice, right? You're on ice and you're like, whoa, like you're trying to walk and like, like you're about to fall. You're about to fall backwards. You're about to slip. You're about to hurt yourself. This is what the writer is saying about what he's witnessed. Whatever he's wrestling with, however he understands the world, he says that it is enough to shake him to make it slippery so that he loses foothold. And then he tells us, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And again, that's a statement that we all kind of go, yeah, I kind of actually think that as well too. How is it when I look at the world, I see people who are horrible people and they are millionaires, they're billionaires, they're healthy, they're athletes, they're celebrities, they are all these things. Why do they, behaving this way, acting this way, looking this way, why do they get all the good stuff? And I, as a Christ follower, as a follower of Jesus, I just get, you know, I, I just wake up every day and, and my life is a new tragedy of, of what's taking place. And so the writer starts off the way. But you have to remember, what, what the writer is saying there is something that is in the very background of the Jewish understanding. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, now remember, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' long sermon. Now, I know, I know that you think that I teach long, right? Moses has chapter after chapter. This is his last sermon before the people go into Israel. Remember, God said to Moses, you're not going to the promised land. So Moses sits there, sees the promised land, and he just gives this long sermon. And in, in, in uh, Deuteronomy 28, he says this, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. The psalmist is simply voicing a wally hell belief. If you do what God wants you to do, then God will bless you. Right? And Deuteronomy and and passage of Scripture seems to kind of enforce this. So, the psalmist is wrestling with something. I've behaved and acted as I'm supposed to, and I'm not really seeing the benefits, right? And so 
what we're seeing here is a very ancient question, but the question's actually kind of important because it tells us something uh, about it. Now, look at this. The psalmist is now going to describe the they. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. The writer has an up-close and personal view of the they. It's interesting, right? What does he say about the they? They don't have any struggles. Their bodies are healthy, right? The they, they're they're doing pretty well. Uh, They are free from common human burdens, right? Apparently, they don't have mortgage payments or credit card payments. They don't have any sickness in their body. They They are not plagued by human ills. So all the bad stuff that happens out there, they seem to be made of Teflon, that, that whatever's going on in the world, all the bad stuff just doesn't even affect them. The writer is looking at the they, and he's describing the they, and you look at that and going, yeah, why is that? Why is that happening? Now watch this. Remember whenever we have a therefore statement, right? A therefore statement is, it is summing up an argument and saying, okay, here is the data now, therefore, here is the answer. Now watch this, because you can use a therefore statement here. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Now look at the therefore. Now look at the people he's describing there, right? Pride is their necklace. They're proud. Why wouldn't they be proud? They're succeeding in every way human beings want to succeed. So, of course, they'd be proud. Um, they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. I love this part there. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Right? What were they saying? They're so proud. They're so arrogant. They're saying, look at, look at my bank accounts. Look at all the people who love me. Look at people who worship me. I must be doing something right. Right? I must be doing something right. You, whoever you are, if you're, not having, if you're not experiencing what I'm experiencing, you must be doing something wrong. Right? And so people are like, wow. It's actually kind of an interesting statement. He's, he's making a very much a statement of this is what they're like and this is how they act. But yet they seem to be succeeding. And in verse 11, he kind of says something about God here. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? The writer believes God is unaware of the state of humanity. It's actually kind of interesting, isn't it? If these people are acting and behaving this way, and yet they seem to be blessed, they seem to have all the stuff that people want, is God napping? Is God, is he maybe perhaps unaware? Is he, is he so enamored by something else? Is he so unaware of this world that he just doesn't see what's taking place? And the psalmist says something. I think that we can actually kind of go like, why? Why? Why do these people, why does this president, why does this politician, why does this business person, why? And it's a question we have to ask and be honest about. And one of the reasons why I love this psalm so much, it is absolutely honest. Because we, if, if, if we can be um, totally like transparent, this world does not make sense. The people who should be uh, in power are not. The people who should be succeeding are not. And the people who are faithful seem to be the people who are always at the, uh, at the very, uh, bearing the brunt of whatever it would be. And in, in your own lives, and again, we're, we're talking like in, in this world, but like in our own lives today. There are people we go to school with, people we are in relationship, people we know in our own lives that they're sick or they're this or they're that. And you're like, why them, Lord? 
And it gets even worse when we talk with children who are innocent and who are, who, are, uh, who are meant to be cared for. And that when tragedy strikes them, we're even more perplexed. We're like, why, God? Why? And the psalmist is saying exactly what we're thinking. And he's actually kind of, in, he's saying maybe, perhaps God is just, maybe he's just taking a bit of a break. Maybe God just is, is, is napping and he doesn't really understand what's taking place. Now look at verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. God's inaction means their behavior is condoned by him. You ever do this? God, if you don't want me to eat this donut, tell me. God, if you don't want me to date this person, then you just let me know. God, if you don't think this is a good idea, you just go ahead and tell me. Okay, I'm taking your silence as a yes. Right? This is what he's saying now. Right? This is what the wicked are like. Because God hasn't done anything, because God hasn't said anything, because God hasn't smote them, smite them, he hasn't sent anything on them, they must be, then he must be okay with their behavior. Isn't this what we all believe? Isn't this kind of what we believe? That if we behave well, we act well, we do well, then, um, then God is going to, um, he's going to bless us and give us what we want. Now look at verse 13 and 16. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Now unpack what he's saying here. Okay? In vain. In other words, where's my reward? I've done what you've asked me to, God. I've obeyed what you told me to. Where's my reward? Right? Look what he says there. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. He might be a little bit dramatic here, but this is exactly what he feels. Like he wakes up every day and he's still single. He wakes up every day and he's still this. He wakes up every day and he doesn't have this new job, this new this, he had, uh, you know, the, the new updated camel with, with the two and a half humps or whatever it would be. Like he has not progressed in his job, in his career, in his life. Every day he wakes up, right? And, and whatever the afflictions would be, he feels it. And he says, God, what about me? Right? And he uses the word in vain. Surely in vain have I kept myself pure. In other words, if there's no reward for this, then why bother? Like, if, if, if I'm not going to get blessed by this, why bother? Should I just do whatever I want so that I can get all the blessings I want? See, what we're having here is this conversation of transactional faith. Transactional faith is kind of a math formula we have in our minds. We don't ever actually articulate, although they do in some places. I'm not here talking about prosperity gospel. That's a whole different conversation. But that's a magnification of something I think that perhaps some of us may think or many of us may think. So when we talk about transactional faith, it's something like this. Acting good plus following God equals wealth, health, and happiness. Hashtag blessed. Right? This is kind of what we believe. Like when people say, hey, I'm so blessed to have this great meal, go on this great vacation, have this great person in my life, you have to understand something. That's not how the Bible talks about blessings. And not to get too deeply into this, because I've already spoke about this, we talked about uh, the Beatitudes, but when the Bible talks about blessed, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Right? But when we talk about blessings, we think of blessings as, you know, good food or, or good hair or, you know, or, or whatever. I'm so blessed because I have this. Because that's how we think of things. That's how we think of God's blessing. We are blessed when we have stuff. Right? No one ever puts hashtag not blessed. And if they do hashtag not blessed, it's because I don't have something. 
because we are transactional in how we understand God, right? So I've acted good. God, I, I live a good life. I pay my taxes. I'm a good person. Remember, definition of good person, I haven't killed anybody, right? As much as I wanted to. You don't know my coworker. You don't know my teacher. You don't know my, the people, my, my, my roommates. You, know, you don't understand. I wanted to kill people on many occasions, God, but I haven't. Therefore, I'm a good person. And not only am I a good person, God, I'm following you. Therefore, wealth, health, happiness should be mine. This is what we call transactional faith. And this is kind of, again, it's kind of the ugly side of Christianity. Because we don't really talk about it. And we say it, we kind of seem shallow. But how we know this actually takes place in our lives is when tragedy happens, when suffering happens. Because in those moments, we are shown how much we look to God for what we get. When tragedy takes place, we look to God and saying, really? Have I not been faithful? Have I not done what you asked me to? Do I not deserve good things? Transactional happens when we don't even realize it. And it's most evident in our lives when bad things happen, whatever those bad things might be. Because in that moment, we're, 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 we're stuck with this realization that I thought that if I was a good boy or girl, that God would bless me because that's what God does. He gives me cookies from heaven, right? And it's like, that's what God's supposed to do. And so we have this idea of transactional faith. And what this is kind of from, though, is this idea of humanizing God. We have humanized God to the point of being able to judge him with our limited understanding. If God is my best friend, if God is, 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 is an extension of my thinking, then if God behaves in acts in ways I don't think he should, then it's not God. Because apparently I have all knowledge. I love the book of Job. We mentioned at the very beginning there, right? But the book of Job is, and I'm going to teach on this in, in the new year, in, in uh, the fall. The book of Job is a fascinating book because it presents to us this guy named Job. Remember I told you the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Uh, it's written sometime after uh, Genesis chapter 3 and 4, and that's a different conversation uh, to get into. But the point with the book of Job is, is that Job is a guy that had everything going for him, right? He had everything going for him. And then one day, the enemy walks into heaven and makes a wager with God. And all of Job's life is torn apart because of this wager, and he doesn't even know this, Right? And Job is sitting on an ash heap. His, his family's been taken from him. His wealth's been taken from him. His wife says to him, curse God and die. You know? and, and his friends are like, what did you do, buddy? You really must have ticked God off to have this happen to you. If anybody in all of history deserved to shake his fist at, 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 at God, Job did. He never did, though, but he did say questions like, he did say statements like, maybe it was better if I never was born. That's an honest statement. I think many of us can go like, my life is such a mess right now. Maybe I just wish I would never been born. But even in that moment, God would not let Job go. And I think, I don't know, I, I just, I feel so sorry for this guy. Because in Job chapter 40, right, Job finally says to God, God, why don't you just kill me? Just get it over with. And God shows up and answers him. And the Bible tells us, it, just, it describes this, this, this image of this, of this cloud this, this, with lightning. It's, just, it's this apocalyptic image, and a voice comes out of it. And it says this, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. You know, if Job's day did not suck at that point in time, you just have the absolute proof that you are just the worst human being ever, right? Now look what it says in verse seven. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. 
You ever get pulled into the, uh, into the principal's office when you were younger? No surprise to you, I spent many times there just whole different conversation. But the point is, you hated it, right? Because the authority figure saying to you, okay, what did you do? And I was like, ah, right? Job is sitting there. He's got boils all over him. His wife is yelling at him. His friends are mocking him. And out of the storm, God says, brace yourself like a man. And then he goes on to say this, Job, just out of curiosity, do you know how the universe works? Do you understand everything that's going on out there? In your limited human understanding, what do you know about this world, really, Job? What view do you have of everything to bring me into account? It's a terrifying passage, but there's absolutely honest truth in that. And the truth is this. As human beings, we can judge God by what we see. And God's like, okay, you have such limited perspective. And I think God kind of wants to say as well, too, how dare you judge me by your own discomfort? And yet, that's exactly what we do. In Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is this fantastic book of the prophet Isaiah. And um, he's asked to do things. He's asked to speak to the people of God and uh, from God. But at Isaiah, uh, as the book kind of progresses, Isaiah gets a little whinier. And it gets a little more complainier. And whatever that looks like, right? And there's one passage in Isaiah chapter 55 where God says this to Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So what God is saying to Isaiah, and again, remember, he's speaking to someone in ancient times, and the farthest thing they could say to him is like, look to the ground and look to the sky. As far and and vast of a distance that is, that's how different I am than you. And what what, what God is saying to Isaiah, what God says to Job, and what the psalmist is kind of wrestling with is that how God chooses to behave and act is different than we would say. And in many ways, we would love God just to be the kind of the ATM in the sky. God, I have a problem. You know, like I'm going to pull this lever and blessings going to be taken care of. God, I'm sick. I have a sniffle. Okay, there you go. It's gone. Okay, God, I, I have to pay my school loans off or God, I have to pay my mortgage off or God, I need some money or God, I'm single or God, I need more hair or, or whatever it would be like I, I, I don't, no offense, Rick. Uh, and and, and, and whatever, whatever it would be, God, I need more. Pull the lever and then it all comes out, right? That's how we would want God. Why? Because it's, it's about us, isn't it? It's about our own personal happiness. But God says something to the prophets in the Old Testament. He says, listen, how I choose to act and behave is not how you would choose to act and behave but I'm God and you're not. You don't have the requirements to sit in my position. And you bring me into judgment because of your small little piece of the world? How dare you? You think your life is bad now? You don't even understand what other people on this earth are going through. And I know that seems kind of cruel and mean because in in suffering, (laughs) you never want to say to somebody, um, it's your fault. Or you never want to say to somebody like, you know, it's okay, God's got this. Because there's nothing worse than when you're experiencing something that's just tragic when someone says to you, just, just have faith, just trust. It's the worst thing you can say because you're like, uh, I, don't, I don't have the capacity. And Psalm 73 helps us kind of step into the eyes of this person who's wrestling with this and going, ah, I don't know. So for 16 verses, this writer, this psalmist has been saying, God, I thought you loved those who loved you. These evil people who do what you don't want them to do? How is it possible that they have all this stuff? 
And in verse 17, we have the, uh, the turning point, right? The, tur- the, the, the turning point in the entire chapter. In verse 17, it says this. Till I enter the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. The psalmist's plight isn't about justice, but about relationship. See, when we look at the world and say, that's not fair. What we're really saying is, I understand what fairness should be, and God should act accordingly. And so in justice, we go, well, this is just, or this is unjust. This is fair, or this is not fair. Right? And the problem with our definition of fair is nothing has been fair on this planet since the Garden of Eden. When sin came into the world, it infected and affected every action, everything about us. There is no fairness anymore. It is not fair that somebody gets sick and someone else doesn't get sick. It's not fair that someone gets cancer and someone doesn't get cancer. It's not fair that this couple who want to have kids can't have kids. It's not fair that you lose your job or, or whatever. Be This is not fair. But the problem is our definition of fair is misplaced. Fairness isn't about justice. It's about relationship. And the psalmist has been looking at the world and saying, okay, God, I'm going to judge you by what I see. And now the psalmist is going to have a moment of flipping things upside down. And he says, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood. Look at verses 18 and 20. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. A second ago, the writer was accusing God of condoning evil actions and people. And all of a sudden, he says something interesting. He goes, listen, you've placed them on slippery ground. You know what he means by that? A wealthy person, and whatever definition of wealthy you want to use for that, it's difficult to understand that they need God. Affluence is one of the greatest killers of the gospel in the world today. That's why North Americans, our faith is so anemic. I'll use that word. Right? Because we have so much stuff. And our stuff becomes what we worship. Right? It's why when we look around the world, here we go again. We see Christianity growing in places of absolute poverty and persecution, right? See, the gospel is good news to these individuals. The gospel is inconvenient for North Americans. And because the gospel is inconvenient for North Americans, we wrestle not about with, with, uh, with how much more we can love God and serve him, but about negotiating with God of what's the minimum I can do to make you happy or, or, or to appease my guilt, right? And so what he says here is so interesting. He goes, these people don't realize it. The beautiful, the wealthy, the healthy, the powerful, they're on slippery ground. And the ground they, are, they, they walk on is like ice that they don't realize how thin it is, it is. And he doesn't have this moment, this aha moment, until he draws closer to God. Because without drawing closer to God, he doesn't realize that he needs God more than these people because of how his perspective has changed. Now look what he goes on to say. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Remember at the very beginning, he had absolute clarity of vision. He saw what was right and wrong, and he was going to call God to task on that. All of a sudden, as he draws closer to God and realizes that there's more going on, in the beginning of the psalm, the writer believes he has perfect vision. God, I can tell you what's right and wrong. I mean, let me just give you some notes here, Lord. Um, Lord, here's, here's, you know, like, like these people, this president, that politician, this business person, this Kardashian. There's like 30 of them, it seems. I don't know. Um, like these people, God, these are not the people that should be prospering in the world today. 
Can you just give him a zit? Can you do something here, Lord? Can you, do, can you just do something? I have perfect vision. I'm going to tell you, God, how to behave. Then all of a sudden, when he gets close to God, he realizes something. The wicked, they may not be out there as much as they are right here. See, there are no good people. There are no good people. I'm not a good person. Spoiler alert. You're not a good person. Shocker. There are no good people. And this list of people who are wicked, we're on that list at some point in time in our lives. And we'll be on that list sometime in the future. So if we want God to deal with the wicked people, we have to ask God to deal with us first. And he realizes that. And what does he say? I was grieved and bitter, senseless, ignorant, brute beast. All the things my wife told me last night about myself. No. Um, but the idea is simply this. He goes, I thought that I was so pure. I thought that I was so right. I thought I was so, had an understanding of justice. But instead, I was no better than a, than a beast, right? Just like, like, a, like a dense, uh, inept beast. That's how he describes himself. And this is where he realizes that his judgment of the world, his judgment of people, it isn't a true judgment because he realizes he's those people as well too. It gets better though. In verse 23 and 26, he says this, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Remember what he said about the wicked? They're healthy, they're beautiful, they're prosperous. Now what does he say? Lord, there's nothing on this earth that I want more than you. My flesh, my heart, all these things may fail, but you are what I want. You're what I need. You are, you are the absolute uh, foundation of my life. And if I don't have a big house or a small house or apartment or roommates, if I don't have this person, I don't have that thing in my life, if I have you, then I have everything I need. If I have you, I have everything I need. What is important, important is finally revealed. Verse 27 to 28, those who, far, who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But if, as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made my sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. The psalmist remembers that there's more to life than life. See, it's so easy in our lives to forget that this isn't the only reality we'll experience. And it doesn't matter what age and stage you're at. Whether you're younger or older, whether you've, wherever you are, this life isn't, it isn't all that there is. Francis Chan, the great communicator, used to have this uh, thing he used to do as a youth pastor. Um, he used to get this rope, and it was like 100 feet long. And he would take, he'd hold one end, and he would tell the youth, okay, just spread the rope around, right? This rope would zip through the room and go all over the place and wrap around people, youth, right? And he would hold on the end of it. He goes, okay, everyone, I want you to know something about the rope, okay? And at the end of the rope was this little yellow piece of tape. Right? There's a hundred foot of, of rope all zipping around there, and there's this little yellow piece of tape that goes, listen, everyone, just want you to know, this rope, it represents eternity. And this little yellow piece here, that's your life. And this little yellow piece determines all this other part. And the idea was simply this, is that whatever struggles, whatever you're facing in this world, I understand, and please hear me very clearly, I do not mean to diminish 
I do not mean to say to you that you should just suck it up or, or it's going to get better type of thing. I do mean to say this. We forget that this world isn't the only reality. We forget that this is not the only part of life. And what the psalmist understands and he realizes that, yes, you can look at the world and say, how come those people? But what the psalmist realizes is that those people have made their decision, are making their decision right now. And this decisions, these decisions have eternal consequences. It's not something we talk about as much in the church anymore. We don't talk about this idea of heaven and eternity. But it's a very important piece of it because it's almost what makes this life bearable is to know that this life isn't the only life that we will live and that the decisions we make in this life affect the next life. I'm going to close with uh, a passage from Revelation. Sometimes you have to go to the end of the Bible to make sense of the entire Bible because sometimes you look at the Bible going, ah, I don't quite get it. In Revelation chapter 22, this is the last chapter of the Bible. We are counting down, right? There's this real passage of scripture. And again, it's getting towards the end here. And this is Jesus responding. He says this, look, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I'm the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What does Jesus say? I'm bringing my reward with me. Can I, can I get an advance on that right now? Can I get some reward right now, Lord? No, 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 no. Because the reward, you think, wealth, health, prosperity, if God gave that to you as you think he should, you may not need him as much as you think you would. And you are placed upon slippery ground. And it doesn't mean that, of course, we wouldn't like a little bit more. But Jesus tells us that the reward that he brings, the reward of our faith isn't about what happens here. It's about what happens at the next life. There is going to come a day where we will all stand before God, every one of us, and we will give account for our lives, for the decisions we make here. And that little piece of yellow tape on that huge piece of rope will become that much more important because the decisions we make here have eternal consequences. And the psalmist understands that. He starts off by saying, I envy the wicked and the prosperous. I envy what they have. I want to be healthy. I want to be this. I want to have that. But then he realizes, oh, wait. If I had that, then my eternity would be different. Sometimes the greatest answer God can give to you is no. Sometimes the greatest gift God can give to you is some suffering, is some parts of our lives that are messy because that turns us towards him. And the slippery ground the psalmist talks about is all the stuff that we want in our lives sometimes. And that's not to say if you have money or resources that you can't love God. Of course not. But affluence is, it's the third seed in the parable of the sower. Deceitfulness of wealth, the worries of life. These things lie to us and make us independent of God, not need God. And the Psalms tells us, why do bad things happen? Why, do, why does the, the rain fall on the just and the unjust? And, and God tells us, because this life isn't all that there is. The song that uh, I asked Julia to sing at the end is It Is Well. It Is Well is, is, is my favorite hymn of all time. And I love it because the story behind It Is Well is an incredible story. This, the hymn was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a man who was a hymn writer in England, and him, his family was going to America. And his, his wife and his children took a boat ahead of him, 
And on the way to America, that boat sunk. And everybody on board was lost. And Horatio Spafford received word that, that the ship was lost. And of course, when the ship is lost, that means all lives are lost as well too. Horatio Spafford was going to America and he took the same route as his wife and children. And he spent the time in his cabin and he asked the captain, when we, were, when we get close to the spot where the ship went down, come get me. And so Horatio Spafford spent the time in the cabin reading the Psalms and praying and wrestling and yelling at God and whatever, all things that any normal person would. And the knock came on the door and the captain says, we're here. Horatio Spafford walks up to the deck, sits on the deck, and he writes this song. When my life turns upside down, when all the things of my life go wrong, it is well with my soul. And the reason why verse 5 is the way it ends off, he says this, the clouds will be rolled back in the scroll and the trump shall resound and the Lord will descend. Right? This is the reward that he will be with his wife and children again, but not in this life. And that that's the only comfort sometimes a person can have in this world. That the tragedies of this life, and again, I can't imagine losing your children and your spouse in such a tragic circumstance. I can't. But yet he was able to go up on the deck and write the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And, and if you just think about the words of that, right? It's, just, it's an incredible admission of God. I am such a human being. I'm so frail. I'm so weak. And I don't understand. But God, you are God. And whatever this world throws at me, it is well with my soul. And that you are God. And one day I will stand before you and I will be faithful. And I won't understand, I won't have all the answers, but I will trust in you. Let's pray.